Hello and welcome to the Monday episode of the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me today are our transfer market insiders and pundits extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On today's transfer podcast, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has defied the expectation, winning eight games in a row and bringing the Thunder back to Old Trafford. This hasn't been missed by the United boardroom, and we bring you news that his future is now on the Glazers' immediate agenda. Arsenal are looking to strengthen with some big names linked with a move to North London, but are they truly willing to splash the cash? We look at the Gunners' transfer strategy as they are linked with top-level ballers Ivan Perisic and James Rodriguez. And Spurs have been knocked out of two cup competitions within a week, Maurizio Pochettino says he thinks winning trophies is about ego and some of the dressing room are upset about the lack of movement in the transfer market. We take you inside a week of turmoil at Spurs and ask what's next for their Argentine coach. Okay, well, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is having quite the start to his tenure at Manchester United. That is now eight games in a row that he has won. Ian, the board must be under pressure. That's certainly the word on social media to get this guy appointed full time. What's the news? Um, developing um, story on this one, Johnny, is, as you mentioned, there is growing um, pressure, growing momentum from, I think, Manchester fans mainly um, because they're loving watching their team play again. And as we uh, reported last week on the transfer window, uh, is our information that neither Ed Woodward or the Glazers uh, feel in any way obliged or <clears throat> press-ganged into making a decision before the end of the season. However, what has changed slightly, and I have to emphasise, it's, it's a small movement, but it could no less be significant. Manchester United are due to have the board meeting, uh, a monthly board meeting, at the end of this week. And I'm told that Solskjaer and his possible appointment on a full-time basis has made it onto the agenda. Now, I'm not saying they're going to make a decision and, and appoint him after this board meeting, although nothing is out with the zero possibility. I doubt that will be the case. But the very fact that uh, the performances in the pitch, the results, the um, style of play and the obviously feel-good factor that's returned to Manchester United under Solskjaer has, um, has made this uh, an issue now to be discussed at board level uh, only eight games in uh, to his um, part-time or sorry caretaker role. One of the other interesting things is I'm told that uh, members of the board, specifically Ed Woodward, have been canvassing the opinions of those who've been working close with Solskjaer on the basis of what's his method, what's changed so dramatically, um, can it be sustained? Um, do you think that he would be the guy to take us forward in, in the longer term? All those questions are being answered by people working closer with Solskjaer so that Woodward can pass that back to the other board members, including, of course, the owning Glazer family. So for me, that's an interesting development. Um, obviously has been catalysed by uh, Solskjaer's um, performances. I think the way he's behaved as well in the media as well has been impressive, etc. But um, as I said, it's, it's something which... Um, will be discussed this week and we may, we may well have more information uh, on Friday's podcast 
Uh, Duncan, what, what would you make of um, this kind of situation where it's still a halfway house but being talked about or not being talked about? Well, I think the board are pushing against an open door here in the sense that there's no doubt the Manchester United supporters would welcome um, the appointment being made permanent, more than welcome. And there's no doubt that the players um, are, are extremely positive um, about Solskjaer, enjoying the way they're being coached, enjoying uh, the way they, as they put it, they're being allowed to play now. Um, the idea that they're expressing that they, they can go out and try and beat everyone, um, use their attacking options um, to, uh, to undo teams rather than being dependent on uh, defending, as they had been under um, Mourinho in various matches. Um, and, you know, it's, you see at any club when you get a run of results like this, the momentum of the results is there. Uh, people feel happy about themselves because they go out in a football pitch and they win games. Um, and they get praised in the press. Uh, and people don't question them and criticise them. So, so it's, it's becoming very easy for the Glazers to make that choice, if that's the choice they want to do. As we said from the start of Solskjaer's arrival, he is going to be the cheap option. Um, he won't cost as much in salary. They'll have to pay a fee to Molda to, to break him from his contract. But he's not going to be expensive. He, that they can expect that he won't be particularly demanding in the transfer market, as, for example, someone like Zinedine Zidane coming in. You would imagine Zidane would, would, would come in both asking for a big salary and asking for um, significant work to be done on the team because his analysis will remain that, that the squad isn't good enough um, to win a Premier League title and the squad isn't good enough to win Champions League title. Um, Solskjaer avoids those complications. He clearly wants the job. Um, he keeps putting messages out, subtle, um, respectful messages that, uh, that this is where he wants to be, and, and if the opportunity is granted to him, he will, he will certainly take it. So on a, he gave a press conference today in which he was ask, asked um, about the structure of the team going forward, and he said, I'm planning for what Manchester United are going to look like next season, with or without me. Again, very carefully phrased, um, ticking all the right boxes, um, but showing that, one, he's doing the work you'd expect of a full-time manager, i.e. Um, not just uh, working on the games they have this season and the results they have to get to, to qualify for the Champions League, but also um, planning for the next season, which is what he would have to do if it was his as a permanent position. The one, the one caveat I would have, and I think the, the Glazers have to have, and I think Ed Woodward has to have, is, is the question of what happens when they hit um, a road bump, when they have difficulties in a game or um, over a, a number of games because huge credit to, to what they've done, uh, what he has done and the way he's changed the, the atmosphere in the squad and the performances extracted from the players. But it has to be said, realistically, the start has been maybe fortunate is the word to use in the sense that nothing has gone against him yet. He's not been a goal down in a game. Um, He's not had an injury to an important player. He's not had a, a bad refereeing decision. He's not had players suspended, and, and uh, apart from Eric Bailly early on, uh, but uh, a player who's fundamental to his plan sent off and suspended. 
And even in you know the Arsenal game, fantastic result. You win a key FA Cup game. This is an opportunity for him to win a trophy against strong opponents. Again, you can say, when did Manchester United score their goals? Really well-taken goals, well-created goals. They scored them immediately after Socrates had to go off the pitch injured. And we saw um, Mustafi apparently not even aware that of the possibility had to come on to the point where um, Arsenal's physio was, was slow walking off the pitch to try and give Mustafi more time to come on. I, I've seen players taking their time to come off the pitch before to waste time at the end of a match. I've never seen a physio taking his time to come off the pitch to try and uh, give the replacement player more time to get himself ready. And what happens? Two central defensive mistakes in the space of five minutes, two goals, uh, and, the, and the game is then set up in, in a way that Manchester United shouldn't lose it. So just from the, uh, the perspective of doing due diligence, you would think that the Glazers, the Manchester United, want to see how he reacts when that momentum goes against them, when, he, when players don't perform, when they have a difficult result when they have a sequence of very difficult games, as they have coming up um, before too long when they return to Champions League action. Um, and again, I think that would, that would fit into the argument that they wait before making a decision. OK, moving on from Manchester United to the team that they defeated. Um, we've already mentioned them in Arsenal. And there's certainly a lot of speculation surrounding their pursuit for a number of players. While nine of the uh, Premier League clubs haven't signed anyone, it certainly looks like Arsenal are going to be a club that will splash the cash. Duncan, what's the latest? Well, I'm not sure if they're going to splash the cash. I I think that's the essential problem here. Um, As we stated in earlier episodes of the the, the transfer window. They've been looking for a central midfielder and they've been looking for um, a wide player um, in particular in this window. Um, they are trying to do that at present, but they're trying to do it essentially on the cheap. They're, they're looking to, to get high quality players, but do them on loan deals with options to buy. Um, so they, for, they have tried previously in this window to get James Rodriguez, um, out of his loan at Bayern Munich um, from Real Madrid. Um, and they've been blocked in that, I'm told, by Bayern, who are refusing to let the, let the player go on loan. Um, they've made an approach to Paris Saint-Germain for their young um, central midfielder, Christopher Nkunku. Um, again, um, there are reservations on Paris Saint-Germain's part about um, letting him go on loan um, and what the fee would be. If they're, if they're going to let the player go, they want to sell for a good price um, so they can reinvest that money elsewhere. And then they've made a, an offer to Internazionale for Ivan Perisic, um, who has followed up that offer by uh, requesting a transfer from Inter. Um, Inter appears to be open to the move. Um, their uh, sporting director, Beppe Marotta, spoke um, after their game on Sunday and and said, many players ask for a transfer. Perisic has expressed this desire. We must try to satisfy him, respecting the asset value that the player has for the club. So message there is, yes, we'd be open to selling him to you, um, but we'll only do it 
if you make us a proper transfer offer. And remember, this is a player that Manchester United have pursued recently and whom Inter turned down um, significant offers for in the not-so-distant past and gave a new contract to. So you know, Arsenal would like to do it as a loan deal, paying a loan fee for the rest of the season with, with an option to buy around €40 million. Euros. Um, Inter are obviously sus suspicious of that. Um, I think if Arsenal were to make it a mandatory option to buy and that they were delaying the transfer fee until the summer, then Inter would be more open to that. So they, they would have money um, to invest in their coming season when they'll, be, they'll have um, UEFA financial fair play um, rules removed from them or restrictions removed from them and they're planning to uh, make a big investment in their squad to try and challenge Juve for the title next season, possibly under a new manager. But they don't want to be caught out just uh, just loaning a player to Arsenal to solve a temporary problem on Arsenal's behalf to keep Unai Emery happy until the summer um, with no guarantee that the player will be bought. So um, it's one of those end-of-window scenarios where uh, a club, a significant club, um, with proper resources, if they want to spend them, are trying to do something to satisfy their manager, but are, are kind of doing it half-heartedly and hoping they can find um, almost a donor club uh, elsewhere in Europe who's prepared to let them have one of their better players on the cheap um, for a short period of time um, so that the, the coach is kept happy and the, and the fans are assaged to, to a certain degree. It's an odd one. <clears throat> for a club the size of Arsenal and with not just the resources they have but the potential resources they have as well in terms of they can obviously borrow money as many clubs do based on future income um, with regards to being able to do business now rather than waiting until the summer. Um, Unai Emery's a bit of a bind here. Look at the injury list he has. Um, look at the way that the team have to perform in order to um, ensure Champions League football next season and obviously if you don't ensure Champions League football then recruitment next summer will be more difficult because elite players want to play in the elite competition so I think Emery <clears throat> is within his rights to be putting the club under a lot of pressure to get at least one if not two deals over the line before the window closes because without them they could really struggle um, for this part of the season uh, and struggle achieving um, just the bare minimum ambitions that they need to in order to be or retain their status as one of the top clubs in England, never mind Europe. Um, so it's 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 you know it's something of uh, a concern, I think. And as as time ticks away, what we know for sure is that prices go up, transfers become more difficult uh, logistically to conclude because you have medicals and contracts etc that need to be agreed and passed um, before a, a player can then complete and register um, so yeah it's, it's it'll be an interesting I think three or four days now until the close of the window on Thursday uh, because we always see you know a flurry of, of deals being done in the last sort of 48 24 hours of the window we don't usually see, except sometimes Tottenham, is one of the big clubs uh, sort of scurrying around trying to find uh, a solution to a particular position uh, in the last few hours of the transfer window. But I've got a feeling that that might be where Arsenal are going um, in terms of this particular window. 
Ian, it's probably early to ask this question, but given that Arsenal are now in a battle for sixth place, for fifth place with Manchester United, who are obviously steaming up behind them, as we've already discussed, do you think Unai Emery will be under pressure if he can't finish in that top four this season? Will it look like his job is under serious threat if they can't get into that position? I doubt it. Um, I think when they employed Unai Emery, uh, that they did so. Um, they sold it to him. And don't get me wrong, what, what they sell you in the catalogue isn't always what turns out. But what they sold them was the opportunity to, to rebuild Arsenal um, after Wenger's departure. Uh, I think he has the faith um, of Stan Kroenke. I think he's got the faith of, of the current Arsenal administration. Uh, they've seen improvement. It's, it's, it's obviously subsided um, in, in a sort of rather, uh, I wouldn't say sort of concerning, but it's certainly been um, a lot less uh, progressive in the past two months uh, to what it had been earlier in the season. I think sacking Emery would be a backward step for Arsenal um, after just one season. I, I don't see that that's what they'll be looking at. I think they'll be looking to him to guide their recruitment policy in the summer in a, in a much more considered way than they're doing right now in this window. So um, I doubt it's the manager's job that will be you know, in um, any jeopardy. I think it's more likely that, uh, and I think required, that Arsenal need to have a clear out of players who um, are either not good enough because they've, they've been bought younger or brought through and have not managed to make the, the right kind of impact to retain them, or um, as well as uh, get rid of, if they can, players at like Mesut Ozil, who's commanding a ridiculously high salary, um, but not in any way performing to the level, if he even gets a game at all, that is, um, to justify that salary. So the biggest challenge for, for Emery and for Arsenal, it won't be Emery keeping his job, it'll be getting rid of the dead wood and, and rebuilding... Um, on a platform which is both affordable but also, um, you know, it increases the quality um, in their squad in order that they can compete uh, at a much better level, which they currently are not. OK, we're going to jump on a tube across North London now and talk about Spurs. Um, they've been pumped out of two cups in the last week and an astonishing quote from Maurizio Pochettino uh, after the defeat against Crystal Palace when he said... We're going to have the debate about whether a trophy will take the club to the next level. I don't agree with it. It only builds your ego. The most important thing for Tottenham right now is to always be in the top four. Duncan, we've discussed in the past about Pochettino being attractive to both Manchester United and Real Madrid. Is that going to still be the case with comments like this? I think he is. He's definitely still attractive to Manchester United and Real Madrid. Um, you know, they, they have been targeting him as a potential manager for not months, but years. Um, I think what is noticeable in what Pochettino is saying, and it's coming out now on a weekly basis, if more, even more frequently, is the degree of criticism about the club um, and the underlining of the difficulties He's, he's facing there. Um, last week, he was talking about uh, the idea that qualifying cha- Tottenham regularly for the Champions League, which is one of the things he's very successfully done during his tenure at the club, um, would be uh, would help them 
uh, sign better players and talk it and saying that was the theory, but it hasn't happened in practice. You've got the, these comments after the defeat um, at the weekend. Um, the other other comment I thought, which was interesting, in about after he went out of the FA Cup, was to say that to win a title here in England is about being lucky. Um, there's, there's a lot of, of, of positioning of himself involved here. Um, and I think he must be conscious that the opportunity to go to Manchester United is diminishing um, with Solskjaer's results and for the reasons we discussed um, earlier in this podcast. Um, and I, I think it, it, obviously the, it's better for him when he's trying to uh, maybe manufacture an exit, it's too strong a word, but where he's trying to look for the best opportunity to leave the club and progress his career elsewhere. It's better for him to have two clubs involved because you can play them off against each other. Um, so I, I think that there's definitely a degree of frustration. There's a, a degree of, of strategy here. But what, what's certain is that um, the, the situation at Tottenham is becoming more fragile um, by the week. Uh, not only because of these exits from the cup, but also I think because he, he's got problems that are matters of injury, um, missing key players from his team. He knows the squad is tired because he's, he's had to use that core group that he trusts uh, too much earlier in the season, that they've come into this, um, this season off for a lot of them, a long World Cup campaign, which is something which is generally a problem for players. Um, his, his managerial coaching style has always been to train the players hard through the course of the season. Um, so he's had difficult climaxes to season off the back of that. So when you, when you see the results dropping off at this stage, you see the opportunities to win a cup disappear effectively because I, I don't think realistically we can talk about them being real Champions League candidates to win it. Then that it's, it's kind of the opposite of the Solskjaer situation. The momentum's going the other way. Um, the confidence draining from the players and the the joy of the performances going from the players and, and from the manager, which which inevitably is going to, for any individual, is going to have him reflect on the conditions in which he's working and, and start to consider whether those conditions are acceptable to him and either put pressure on the man in charge to change them, which is something he's tried before uh, without any result. You know, he, We've seen him talk time and time again about the need to win titles, ironically, and the need to uh, buy better players to have the opportunity to take Tottenham to the next level. No effective response from Levy. So where does he go from here? That, that's the question he will be asking himself and the question everyone associated with Tottenham Hotspur have to ask. And there's also been a significant change in his attitude, um, at least publicly, in the last... Uh, eight to ten weeks, whereby um, he, as a person, is noticeably um, optimistic by nature, generally very positive. He likes to laugh and joke with people in media conferences. You see a lot of that. People like going to a Pochettino press conference because they know, A, that he'll be interesting 
uh, and engaging, but also that uh, there'll be an element of kind of uh, camaraderie, if you like, want to call it that. He likes to get involved. Uh, he likes to, to talk expansively on subjects. And that has changed significantly to become uh, more and more negative. Um, he's focusing on the problems, not on solutions. He's focusing on uh, things that have gone wrong, whether it's VAR or refereeing decisions or injuries, etc., etc. Now, when that ha- when a manager changes face, if you want, like that, there is a drip down effect to the coaches and to the playing staff uh, and to everyone involved in the football department because they notice that they work with this guy, you know, hours per day, day in day out on match days, etc. It does have an effect. And having spoken to a couple of people close to the, the, the Spurs dressing room um, in recent days, I've been told that there is a certain amount of um, concern in the dressing room about uh, both the manager's situation going forward in terms of should he stay or will he stay or will he not? But also in the lack of ambition that they perceive and that the manager clearly perceives above him in terms of buying players. Now, we're not talking French players here because they will always be um, kind of hoping that the, an injury or a lack of recruitment means they get a chance. I'm talking about the hardcore players who are first names on team sheets. So Harry Kane, Eric Dyer, Deli Ali, uh, Jan Vertonghen, etc. These are the kind of players who want to have better players to make the team better, to make them more challenging and to give them a better opportunity to both pursue and win titles. Now, this is the second transfer window in a row that they've seen nothing come in. Pochettino's seen nothing come in and no sign of that changing, especially with the stadium going three times over budget. So put those things together and what you've got is a club, not in crisis as yet, but a club that, that, that is going in the wrong direction. Um, and, you know, where Spurs were almost everyone's, I wouldn't say second favourite team, um, but they were certainly a team that everyone liked to watch play. I think now there's a sense that um, they're losing that that joy of, of football. And I think we saw that uh, against Palace yesterday, albeit with many changes, etc., etc., but also in recent games. And, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a complex situation, which really only one man can resolve and, and can change and that's Daniel Levy and he seems to be very um, sort of uh, well preoccupied with trying to get the stadium finished and trying to keep the cost as low as possible on that and therefore if he's turned you know and uh, his head away from the football department because he's desperate to get the stadium finished then that could be dangerous in itself because that's when problems arise and if the problems aren't you know, at least addressed when they're in their infancy, then they'll only grow and they'll grow more quickly. So for Tottenham, um, as I said, I don't think they're in anywhere near crisis mode right now, but they're certainly at a a crossroads um, in terms of where they want to be and what they want to do. And I would say that um, on the subject of what Pochettino said regarding trophies, um, that's either astonishing or completely ludicrous for him to say that because why would you go out and train every day, play once, twice a week and not care about winning a trophy? I mean, everyone who plays professional football, especially at the elite level, wants to win. 
And it's not just win games, it's win trophies. I suspect that that statement itself was meant more for Daniel Levy and more tongue-in-cheek um, in terms of it being ironic rather than it being taken at face value. Uh, and if I was Levy, I'd be concerned about that as well. Just a, just a bit of information here. They, they, it's not that they haven't been looking for players in this window. They are looking for players, but they're looking for them in in the shape of the overall strategy we outlined in the podcast um, a few weeks ago, which is a player who is younger, talented, can turn into a top player uh, after a couple of seasons in the Premier League and is accessible for a good price. Um, you know, and, and the problem they have, and why I, I suspect we won't see anyone significant arrive before the end of the window, is that that player is extremely difficult to find in the current market. The pricing of those players has gone through the roof. Um, yeah, and also, everybody's looking for that kind of player, Duncan. All elite clubs are now looking for that player. You know, we've seen exactly. that with Bayern Munich's pursuit of Hudson Odoi. You know, they're not they're not looking to buy a twenty eight year old, you know, ready made hits the ground running player. They're trying to buy a player who's eighteen for thirty million quid because they think he might be a hundred million pounds player in five years' time. Yeah, I mean, one of the players Tottenham have looked at is Frankie De Jong. Um, so De Jong ends up going to Barcelona for um, initial seventy five million euros after PSG are trying to sign him. So where where do Tottenham even have a hope of getting involved in 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 that discussion? First, from a financial point of view, but secondly, from the, the point of view of what they can sell to the player as a as a venue for him to come to. Um, another player they've been interested in, who Arsenal are also interested in, is, is Nicola Pepe at um, at Leo, who's who's had a sensational season for Leo uh, in that young age range. Would, would be that kind of um, Song Kyung Min of a few years ago. Uh, Leo won 80 million euros for them. The president said publicly the player doesn't leave unless we, we are paid 80 million euros for the player and he's confident he'll get that from somewhere, if not in this window or the next window. Are Tottenham able to do that? Maybe. Maybe they are able to do it in the summer if they sell one of their top players. But again, are they able to convince someone like Nicola Pepe to come to Tottenham when he'll probably have offers from clubs of greater status who can pay him higher wages as well. And I think that's what Pochettino is seeing. He's not a stupid man. He sees that he's tried to get Daniel Levy, he's pressured Daniel Levy to change and provide the conditions he thinks are needed to win that title, win, win that first trophy, which, which he as a coach has never won. And, he, and the response hasn't been there. Will the response ever come? Probably not. So uh, the answer for Pochettino seems to be, I need to go elsewhere while, while the iron's hot. With the transfer window set to shut very, very shortly indeed, we thought we'd take some time to look at some deals that could go through in the coming days. Duncan, hit me up with a deal that you think is set to go over the line. Uh, well, I'm not sure it'll go over the line, but it's a, it's a deal that Newcastle United are trying to do um, for the Greek midfielder Andreas Samaris, um, a player that Rafa Benitez has wanted for a long time and who has wanted to play in the Premier League football for a long time. Uh, he's got half a season left in his contract at Benfica. Um, Benitez would like him in to, to reinforce that squad to try and uh, avoid relegation. Samaras, I think, is open to the deal. The problem, as you'd expect with Newcastle, is what they're prepared to, to pay for them. They've offered Benfica half a million euros um, for the rest of the, the contract. Um, I'm told Benfica 
are reluctant to accept that because they um, they're playing them at the moment and uh, and feel that yeah, it's, it's worth retaining them if that's all the money they they can sign for him. But there could be movement on that in the last few days as the, as the player wants to go and as the manager is pressing for the deal to happen. Ian? Well, I, I think there's a very interesting trend uh, happening over in, in Paris. Um, we saw that they signed uh, Eric Chipomuton from, from Stoke and everyone was surprised by that uh, particular move given that he didn't seem to be particularly impressive. Uh, playing in English football. And now um, a bid has been put into Everton for Idrissa Gay, um, again, central midfielder um, of £21.4 million, I think, around €25 million. Um, Very serious offer. Everton, I'm told, are saying he's not for sale. I think he is quite a sort of important member of their team. Um, And obviously they're not doing too well right now either, so um, losing one of their best players would not be uh, a particularly smart move. But I'd just say from the player's point of view, going to play at PSG um, would be, I think, very attractive. So that's one I think we need to watch over the next uh, couple of podcasts, obviously, as we are now three times a week. Uh, we'll update you on that uh, as we hear it. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Uh, it's the kind of move that where you attract a player and you put a reasonable transfer on the table. Paris Saint-Germain have needed to strengthen in midfield. That's one of the reasons they've been chasing De Jong uh, so hard. Obviously, they sidelined Adrian Rabiot uh, because he's refusing to sign a new contract. So again, that, that, that puts them under pressure to get someone in before the end of the window. Um, so it's one of these transfer chains. Everton, I'm told, are looking at Thiago Mendes at Leo um, as a replacement for Gay, if they do get, um, if they do are, are forced to sell them or get the get the fee they want for the player, um, and Leo are looking at Pedro Obiang at West Ham United um, as a potential replacement for Mendes should they sell him. Now, they they made it clear in his case that they will sell him. Again, the Leo president's uh, gone on record about it, saying we're open to a deal, but um, we need twenty million euros for it. Um, I believe Southampton are also interested and Roma are also interested. Um, and there may be some other, I think uh, there's been interest from Germany in the past as well. So Thiago Mendes is one to watch as something that could happen because the players are ready to move and the club are ready to sell and the price is established and there are, are a few suitors um, looking, but it could be one that's dependent on a on, on a transfer chain happening to uh, to give someone the cash to make that deal happen. Okay, it's time now for our Heroes and Villains segment where we look at the action of the weekend and give you our picks for the best players of the weekend and the guys who we think are villains. doesn't have to be players, can be anyone involved in football. We're going to start with you, Ian. Who's your hero of the weekend? Hero of the weekend is um, someone who Chelsea fans maybe think is a villain. It's Callum Hudson-Odoi. He's my hero because, Johnny, of the goal against every Wednesday in the FA Cup tie. Not the goal, not the strike, but the, but the touch, the first touch in his right foot is absolutely angelic. He, he brings it down with a lightness of an angel's wings. And then goes straight into a Cruyff turn, the, the Cruyff reverse. Then it's a decent strike. The keeper gets a hand to it. Very beautiful. The, the, the slight villain part, of course, is that you know he wants to leave for Bayern Munich. And a little bit of information on that is, I'm told there's a final meeting pl- planned 
um, for Tuesday or Wednesday with his representatives and Chelsea um, to uh, basically say, is there anything we can do to stop you from going to Bayern Munich? Uh, we'll increase your financial terms on the new contract. You've been playing more recently. We're confident that's going to continue to happen. Uh, please stay with us. Ian, yeah, just on that, would you not be better yeah, going yeah. to Bayern Munich, you know, saying slight villain? It's not better for his career to go and get game time. And Chelsea have an no, appalling no, no. record. No, I agree with you, but I said villain in, in the eyes of Chelsea fans because they obviously want ah. to keep him and they don't want him to leave, uh, Johnny. But like, I agree that if he's going to get guaranteed game time, but that's something which no club will guarantee you. Um, like the way he's played in the, in the um, more minutes he's had this last month, I think he looks like he, he deserves a place in the team. Um, the problem he has is you've got William and Pedro uh, and Hazard sometimes plays wide as well. So, and he sees Pulisic coming in in the summer. So he's probably looking at it and thinking, I, I am you know, not going to be a regular starter at this club and that's why I want to go to Bayern Munich where obviously young English players are um, flavour of the month or flavour of the year. So yeah, I would encourage him to go abroad if he thinks it's going to better his career. Absolutely. Duncan, who's your villain? My villain of the weekend, uh, chosen by Sheffield Wednesday fans, uh, would be Andre Mariner. Um, might be a little bit harsh in the referee, uh, given that it was the video assistant referee who put him in, in, in trouble in this case. But I think uh, the argument here is just one of the, one of the many, many problems we're getting uh, with video assistant referees, um, the unintended consequences, um, the complications it had for referees. You can have an argument. I think there is actually an argument over whether it was a penalty or not, because I'm not entirely convinced, having watched the replay from several angles, that Ampadu actually got his foot on the ball. What I, what I see is Ampadu getting his foot between the ball and the Sheffield Wednesday uh, player, um, Pelo Pessi. Um, and Pelopesi uh, finishing his attempt to, to shoot, kicking Ampadu and kicking Ampadu's boot onto the ball and it going out um, for what should have been either a corner kick or um, a penalty. If you want to interpret Ampadu not actually touching the ball as a, as a foul on the player or a free kick, if you, if you want to say that Ampadu um, got the ball uh, and then Pelopesi kicked him. But what the referee does after having his penalty decision overruled is he, he gives a bounce ball, um, which obviously takes the attacking advantage away from Sheffield, um, doesn't let them have a corner kick, and uh, Chelsea go up the other end and, and get a penalty themselves and score and take the lead in the game. So um, I think a villain, because he's not interpreted uh, the, the situation correctly in that should be given as a either a free kick or a corner kick and not a bounce ball. Um, but I think the, the, the bigger villain here is VAR, which, again, we're seeing in almost every game it's used in England, the complications of it. We're seeing uh, the imperfections of the system. I think it's fascinating what we had with the, the Harry Kane incident in the League Cup uh, semi-final first leg and that we discovered that there was only one calibrated angle uh, that the, the assistant, the video assistants were making offside decisions from, which was clearly a very difficult angle to make that decision. So if, you know, we were told that offside was, was one of the things that VR could definitely solve. Uh, in fact, um, Gianni Infantino 
told us after the World Cup finals um, that we would never see an incorrect offside football uh, offside goal in football again because of VAR. Um, I, I think it's just another example how this technology has been oversold and how complicated it is to actually put in, into practice. Um, when it seems in principle to be an easy solution, it's not an easy solution and it, and it causes so many um, unintended difficulties in, in football um, when it's supposed to be making things better. There is a, an easy solution to this, Duncan, and that's to have VAR on the VAR. <laughs> <laughs> and then VAR on him as well, ad infinitum, and then <laughs> football will just end. Yes. Absolutely, and that's the problem with it. And 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 we're going to get after every, as we see, after every game, we have a discussion over whether the referee was right, and now we have a discussion over whether the VAR was right. Uh, it's um, talking talking to journalists who've worked in countries where VAR has been implemented. They say that that's not going to go away. We'll have that ad infinitum, as you, as you mentioned, um, and you wonder what it actually does for the game in the long run. Okay, before we go, um, we obviously lost a titan of sports journalism this week in Hugh McIlvanny, who passed away aged 84. Ian, what was your reaction um, to the loss of the great man? I was very saddened, uh, Johnny, as you know, we always are when we lose one of our, our great colleagues, and Hugh, for me, was the greatest uh, sports writer, and I doubt he very much will ever be surpassed. Not only that, he was, uh, he was a great man to be around. Uh, yes, he had. Uh, very st stringent opinions, which you know he you would challenge at your peril. But um, <clears throat> I guess you know I, he he inspired me to become a sports writer. And the very first time I met him, I was interviewing him for the Scotsman um, on the publication of McIlvanny on football. Uh, I went to his agent's offices in Drury Lane in London. Uh, we we spoke. He was very generous with his time. He, we must have spoke for two hours on and off the record. Um, at the end of which, he said to me. Do you fancy a pint? And I thought, my God, he's just given me two hours of his time and now he wants to take me for a drink. So we went around the corner from his agent's office and we, we sat in this pub uh, and uh, <clears throat> moved to dinner and then to another pub and another pub and another pub and two Scotsmen in London. Uh, it became a very long evening until uh, the, the long last you said, I'm sorry to cut this short, Ian, but uh, <laughs> I, I've, got, I've got to be going. And, as I, and we were standing outside Charing Cross Station and the sun was coming up, and it was probably at five in the morning. <laughs> and he and he he said to me, um, he said, "But where are you staying?" And I was staying somewhere across the river. And he said, "Take a walk across the river. Look at the river, and I guarantee I'll be seeing you working in uh, in London soon." And I said, "Well, that's very kind of you." And uh, I said, "Where are you off to?" He says, "Ah, I've got to go to Boots to buy a toothbrush." Now that's a very bad impersonation of what was. I said, "Why? Why are you buying a toothbrush at five in the morning?" He says. I'm on the eight o'clock flight flight to New York. I'm there for the fight. <laughs> he was literally going to buy a toothbrush and take a, take a taxi to Heathrow to get on a flight, having just done an all-nighter on the bevy. Oh, he hadn't packed any clothes. He had his wallet, his passport, and his pocket. That was all he did. Off he popped. That was it. And um, I thought, wow, that's some guy. Um, and he actually inscribed my book, Wonderfully as well, I should say. Um, it's all pieces of different, you know, interviews. And uh, I'd, he actually asked my opinion. He said, which one did you think was the best? And I said, well, actually, ironically, it was a George Best piece. I absolutely loved it. So he wrote in his, his book, in my book to my friend Ian, who had the good sense to spot that the George piece was the best of a bad lot. Good, <laughs> good luck in your own writing. <laughs> 
Hugh. And I thought that was just class. And that was the first time I met him. And I was lucky to have met him on many, many occasions and been in his company since then. And yeah, a great loss to us. Yeah, I'm fortunate to work with you at the Sunday Times um, for a number of years. And uh, fortunate enough to have I've helped him. Um, I guess help is the word, but been used as a source on one of his pieces. And um, I think if you if you read uh, Jonathan Northcroft's interview with... Um, with Sir Alex Ferguson, talking about uh, Sir Alex's friendship with Hugh. And um, Sir Alex goes into a lot of detail about how um, exacting uh, Hugh was in terms of checking facts and, and ensuring that everything that went into a, a, a book they wrote together on, on Ferguson's life was ex exactly correct. Um, I, I had a, a sort of small taste of that in um, helping queue out with, with a piece about Chelsea and, uh, and a long, long phone conversation um, in which he wanted uh, every detail to be uh, accurate before he went to print. Um, and it, yeah, it was an honour just to be asked to, to help someone of that, uh, of that stature um, with his work um, and, uh, and indeed a great loss um, and uh, just the, reading some of his, his work again, stuff that inspired as a, as a youngster and and uh, developed uh, an interest in sports journalism off the back of it. Um, yeah, very sad to hear the news last week. Great tributes, gentlemen. Well, it's time to slam this particular transfer window shut, but fear not, we'll be back on Wednesday to fulfil all your podcasting needs. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own transfer window official account at Transfer Podcast. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, and most importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles, and for Ian McGarry, at GarboSJ. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, please give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until next time, thanks for listening.